0: Well, I want to spend some time tonight looking at the Christian's victory as we look at Satan and his schemes, part nine, and this will bring us almost to the very end of this series. So turn with me to Colossians chapter three. And tonight I'm basically going to be just reading a lot of Bible to you. The Bible really speaks for itself on this topic, and I I really just want to try not to get in the way. We'll begin with Colossians 3, 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Since the early 20th century in Pentecostal circles, Assembly of God, Pentecostal Church, particularly the Pentecostal Church, though, the topic of Satan has been really a major influence in the overall thinking of that movement. It's a movement founded originally on the idea of the supernatural power being given to church members originally for the spread of the gospel. That was the purpose. Original Pentecostalism believed so strongly in the resurgence of miraculous sign gifts, and they did believe correctly that the gift of tongues, for example, as as revealed in the New Testament, is a gift of languages, of human languages. They believed so strongly in this that in the early 20th century, missionaries were sent all over the world without language training. They believed they would miraculously proclaim the gospel to other nations using the gift of tongues. Didn't work out too well because the gift of tongues has ceased. And therefore, what they were speaking was gibberish and they just came home. But Pentecostalism remained. And what happened then was there was a a placing more and more of a heavy emphasis on the supernatural. Less and less emphasis on the biblical gospel and more and more weight on the idea of this supernatural battle taking place in the lives of professing Christians. Now, we've said countless times in this series there is a supernatural battle taking place, but the Pentecostal understanding of that battle has unfortunately permeated general Christian thought all over the world. It's it's gone way outside the lines of just the Pentecostal movement. In fact, there's a number of subtle errors associated with the Pentecostal view of Satan. I want to give you just a couple of them, seven. First of all, the gospel becomes more about getting away from Satan than fleeing the wrath of God. That now what is preached in pulpits is more about run from Satan, not run from God, not run from the wrath of God. Yes, the unbeliever is called a child of the devil, And there is a sense in which we want to get away from Satan. But Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Who is that? That's God. We are to fear God. The gospel then becomes less and less about dealing with my own sin and more and more about dealing with protection from Satan. And now it just becomes essentially... Christianized witchcraft is all it is, a subtle deviation from the truth that makes all the difference between being saved and not saved. And so instead of the gospel being about fleeing the wrath of God, it becomes more about getting away from Satan. A second error that we see, and it's it's prevalent today, is that Satan and demons become a language for speaking about the trials of life. Satan and demons become the language for speaking about the trials of life, all these difficulties without any regard for personal responsibility or holiness. And so that becomes the language. Satan wanted me to do this or that. Traffic was so bad today. Satan didn't want me to get to work. That sort of thinking. And so the more you talk about Satan, the less you talk about personal holiness. Well, maybe if you had left on time, you would have been at work on time. Now, personal holiness and sanctification goes out the window. Anything bad is Satan, and I don't take responsibility. Here's a third error associated with the Pentecostal view of Satan. It presents a diminished view of God. It presents a a diminished, a denigrated view of God. God is less than sovereign in this view because sometimes Satan wins and sometimes God wins. God is less than all powerful because God doesn't seem to win all battles with Satan. And so I've even heard Pentecostals say, well, Satan may win the battle, but God will win the war. Satan's never won a battle. Any battle he seems to win is a battle that God let him win because it was God's purpose for him to win it or seem to win it. And it was always under the sovereignty of God. And so it presents a, a view of God that's that's almost like MMA wrestling, that He's the champion, but it's going to be a close match. There's a fourth error, a su- subtle error associated with the Pentecostal view of Satan. It provides an open door to the wicked prosperity gospel. This view of Satan provides an open door to the wicked prosperity gospel. Satan doesn't want you to be prosperous, but God does. And so now what's the motivation to come to God? It's so that he can give me stuff and I get away from Satan. Satan. Satan wants you to be sick. Have faith in God to be healed. That's the view that now says that being with God, being on God's side, equals prosperity. It's another error. A fifth one this view presents a diminished view of Scripture presents a, a, a diminished, a denigrated, a, a, a really insulting view of Scripture. Now the Bible is seen more as a book of incantations and promises to fight off Satan. Verses are now seen as magic weapons to get what you want and ward off the evil powers around you. Now, the Word of God, we said this morning, is the sword of the Spirit, But the Pentecostal use of the Bible is much more magical. It's much more surface. It's focused on out-of-context verses being spoken aloud in some sort of incantation to personally fight Satan in some sort of glib formula. Well, if I say these verses enough times, then Satan will go away. There's a sixth error. This presents an open door to speak to Satan as one does to God. It presents an open door to speak to Satan as one does to God. This is a common practice in Pentecostal circles. The notion of rebuking Satan is very popular, ranging from something as seemingly innocuous as saying, I rebuke you, Satan, to a full-on pseudo-worship service, all aimed at speaking against Satan. And listen, this is terrifying, because now... Success in spiritual warfare depends solely on the professing Christian and how good he is at this elusive art of resisting the devil through spoken words and commanding Satan as if you have the power to do so. You remember the book of Jude says that even the mighty angel Michael didn't take on Satan by himself. One last error and we could go into many more, but one last one. And this is the sad part. This view of Satan causes doubt and uncertainty in the lives of Pentecostals. Great doubt and uncertainty, because there's always a question of who's winning at any time. If you're wondering who's winning, certainty isn't possible. In fact, certainty would take away the currency of the Pentecostal movement. Their stock in trade is uncertainty. They thrive on fear. They thrive on attempting to achieve some sort of elusive total victory, except the only person who ever seems to achieve it, is the spiritual leader and if you will simply follow him and give to his cause then you too might achieve this victory whatever that is and they never really define it well you need to be victorious and you just want to cry out but what does that mean what do you mean be victorious well rebuke satan okay what does that mean well it means live by faith okay well what does that mean and you can't ever get a straight answer you want to know why because they don't have them Instead, we want to examine the certainties, the actual victory over Satan. What is that victory that we have? Now, we've said this before, and we want to be clear about this. Satan can completely derail the life of a Christian, and that is your choice if that happens. The fact that 1 Corinthians 3 teaches us that some Christians will arrive in heaven to a minimal reward tells us that this is possible. But you have no one to blame but yourself. You have all the armor of God that we looked at this morning. And if you don't pick it up, that's on you. Spiritual warfare happens basically in two realms. Spiritual warfare happens in the doctrinal realm and it happens in the moral realm. Satan wants to get you off track, and I put it this way, in what you believe and how you behave. That's where he gets you. We've already examined many of the very subtle ways he'll attempt to do this. But tonight, I want to focus on our victory, on the certainties, on fact, on where you stand as a Christian. Now, here in Colossians 3, we've already gotten a little taste of that victory, those certainties. You've been raised with Christ. It means you have new life in him if you have received him as your Savior. It's as if you've already been resurrected. You just have that one little minor detail of actually dying and being resurrected. But it's as if you already have been. You've died with Christ. This means that the wages of your sin have been paid. You've identified with Christ. We see this in the picture of baptism, of going down to the grave with Christ, coming up with him in new life. Christ is your life, we see in this passage. Your life is in Christ and always will be. We spent some time on that this morning. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. What does it mean in glory? Is that a place? Yes, it also means The way you are, you will appear with him gloriously. And So those are tremendous truths, tremendous certainties. I'd like to expand outward from those certainties tonight and just talk to you about two helpful parts of your spiritual victory. Two parts of your spiritual victory. The first one we'll call Satan's limitations. And I'm just going to spend a couple of minutes on that. Satan's limitations. And we want to spend most of our time tonight on the other part Your position in Christ. Your position in Christ. All of these are facts established clearly in Scripture that give us great hope and confidence. So just for a moment, let's look at this first part, Satan's limitations. And I'm just going to list four for you. His first limitation is that he is a fallen creature. He is a fallen creature. Everything Satan has ever done has been permitted by God or ordered by God or a combination of both. One of our great examples in Scripture, 2 Samuel 24, 1. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. Take a census that is sinful. And you say, wait a minute, is God asking David to sin? God doesn't do that. First Chronicles 21, 1. Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. Satan only operates within the limits that God allows. God will never touch sin. Satan will be used for his purposes, but always on a leash. Most classic understanding of this comes from Job chapter 1. God allowed Satan to harm Job's family and his possessions, but not Job himself. Job chapter 2, God extended that boundary to include Job's body, but he prevented Satan from actually killing Job. He said, you will not take his life. Satan has... Tremendous power, but it's all-derived power. How do we know this? If God is omnipotent, if he's all-powerful, this means all power is derived from his power, and therefore Satan has only the power that God allows. So he is a fallen creature. There's a second limitation. Satan can never overwhelm the Holy Spirit. He can never overwhelm the Holy Spirit, 1 John 4, 4, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. The Spirit of God has regenerated your heart. He's sealed your heart. He's sealed your salvation. He's baptized you into the body of Christ. He fills you as you let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. He helps you. He comforts you. He counsels you. This ministry of the Holy Spirit can never be taken from you. It can never be replaced. It can never be replicated. There's never a threat that the spirit of Satan will somehow overtake and overwhelm and overcome the spirit of God. That can never, ever happen. It's a third limitation. Satan is undone by the spiritual armor provided to us. Satan is undone by the spiritual armor provided to us. We spent the morning on this topic, the armor of God in Ephesians 6. But think about this. You're commanded in 1 Peter 5, 9 to resist the devil. This is a command. This is an imperative. You're to do this. God wouldn't give you that command if it wasn't possible, if there wasn't a means to do so. In fact, we get a glorious promise in James 4, 7. He says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. Here's the promise. And he will, what? Flee from you. I can make the devil run away from me. I can't, but using the armor of God, I can I can resist him. How do you resist the devil? We said that this morning by obeying God, obeying the Lord. One more limitation. Satan has a certain destiny of doom. He has a certain destiny of doom. Now we're going to spend our entire last message next Sunday morning on this destiny of doom and judgment. And if I could say this, we are going to taunt and mock and deride Satan because we know his final future. And so we're going to take a little moment to do a victory dance. But suffice to say for now that Satan has been sentenced to six different judgments. Three of which have already happened and three have yet to happen. We'll go through those in detail next week. And eventually he will no longer be a factor and you will live all of eternity without his influence and without his harm. What will it be like to live without the influence of Satan? I would imagine it would be like somebody born with a disability suddenly not having that disability, being amazed at what it's like to have life without that. And so Satan's limitations are an encouragement to us. He's a fallen creature who can never overwhelm the Holy Spirit. He'll be undone by the spiritual armor provided you, and he's destined to eternal punishment at the hands of God. Now, we want to be careful. This knowledge shouldn't make you less wary, shouldn't make you less cautious, shouldn't make you less alert. Even in his death throes, he can ruin your life if you let him. He absolutely can. But it should make you more confident, more trusting in Almighty God who's sovereign over all things, including the evil one. And so the first part of your spiritual victory is Satan's limitations. Don't give him more credit than he deserves. The second part, and we'll spend the remainder of our time together on this, your position in Christ. Your position in Christ speaks to the fact that your relationship with God, listen carefully, your relationship with God is so independent of all worldly influences, all worldly authority is so completely wrapped up in God and not in anything else, that position is so uniquely independent that you're able to walk in communion with the Lord no matter what any human does, no matter what any spirit such as Satan does, no matter what anybody tells you, no matter what anybody says to you, no matter what happens in your life, there's nothing that can impact your position. It is absolutely independent of everything except God. You're standing with God as one who's been saved and forgiven by the blood of Christ. It's unassailable it's unconquerable it's undeniable it's irrefutable it's unquestionable it's absolutely impregnable it can't be gotten to this is what peter said in first peter 1 4 and 5 that you have an inheritance and he gives this list about your inheritance it's imperishable it means it can't go bad from the inside from your own failures and sins your inheritance is undefiled it can't go bad from the outside from outside the salt your inheritance is unfading. It can't go bad from attrition or from the passage of time. Your inheritance is kept in heaven for you. It's utterly unreachable by any other power. And it's guarded by God's power. In other words, who's going to get through God to take away your salvation? Can you lose your salvation? Technically, yes. You just have to be able to beat God at something. So it can't happen. We're set. Romans 5 tells us in verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified, past tense, by faith, we have current possession, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So what's your position in Christ? We can't be exhaustive with this at all, but I've chosen six. Six of your positions in Christ that prove beyond the shadow of a doubt your victory over Satan. Here's the first position. You are convinced by the Spirit. You are convinced by the Spirit. The work of the Spirit in convincing is highlighted by the Apostle Paul in his speech to King Agrippa. He told King Agrippa in Acts 26.18 that Jesus Christ had commissioned him, quote, "...to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me." This eye opening, of course, is by the work of the Spirit, the illumining work of God, to open the spiritual eyes. The night that Jesus would be arrested, he spoke to his disciples of the soon coming Holy Spirit. He said in John sixteen, eight, and when he comes he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Those are big time. Concepts, aren't they? Sin, righteousness, and judgment. He will convict the world concerning these things. The word convict is a word that means to expose, to shine light on something. It's the idea of proving the world wrong about itself. The Holy Spirit will present an airtight case that the world is guilty before God, deserving of God's eternal wrathful fury. By the way, this is the only place in all of the Bible, John 16, 8, where the Spirit of God is said to be performing a work in the world. All other cases, generally speaking, the Holy Spirit is described in terms of what he does in the lives of believers. So this is heavily weighted toward a negative connotation, and certainly the Holy Spirit is proclaiming the world guilty, but the Holy Spirit's purpose in proclaiming the world guilty and convicting the world is to bring sinners to the saving knowledge of Christ. And they have to be convicted, they have to be convinced of their own sin. No one comes to Christ standing up. No one comes to Christ with an equal face-to-face standing. You only come to Christ convinced that you are a wretched sinner who should never lift your face to God, that only he may lift your face. You come to Christ not on your feet, you come on your face. And that's the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, that no one may be saved apart from that work And so convicting includes this proclamation of guilt to convince the lost of the reality of their sin, the reality of their need for Christ. And this declaration of guilt, how does it happen? It happens by means of the proclamation of the gospel through the word of God. We talked about that this morning. That as the gospel is understood by the illumining power of the Holy Spirit, this dawning realization of guilt and shame floods over the one hearing And the need for forgiveness and reconciliation now becomes a permanent part of who you are. You can never go backwards. Once you're convinced by the Holy Spirit of your need for Christ, you can never go back. The true believer in Christ can't become unconvinced any more than a skydiver can unjump out of an airplane. You will always be convinced. And as a matter of fact, if anything, throughout the course of your Christian life, you'll become more and more convinced because you'll be more aware of just how sinful you really were. If you came to faith in Christ when you were eight years old, I mean, what's the worst thing that you did you know, before that? But when you're 80, after 72 years of walking with the Lord, you'll look back and see, wow, how selfish I was, how heinous my sin is before God. The James 2.10 says, if I have committed just one error against the law, I am guilty of all. And so you'll never be unconvinced. You will always be convinced of your need for Christ. You'll always be in the position of convinced by the Spirit. Here's a second position you have. You're regenerated by the Spirit. You're regenerated by the Spirit. If being convinced by the Spirit is changing your mind... Being regenerated by the Spirit could be said to be changing your will and your heart. You are, as Jesus stated, born again. Second Peter 1 verse 4 says, You, as believers in Christ, you have become partakers of the divine nature. I can't even wrap my mind around that. This, that's mind-boggling. You've received, as it were, the very nature of God in the same way that a child receives the DNA of his father and his mother. It's the same idea. The opening triumphant introduction of John's gospel says in John 1, 12 and 13, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. What does that mean? You aren't a Christian because your parents were Christians. You aren't a Christian because you decided to be a Christian. You were born of God. You're brand new. You're different. There's a completely new identity. One of our greatest verses that explains this. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, this little idea of passing away. This is very interesting. Now, we understand that it can mean to die. We get that. Something has passed away. But it can mean to go past a reference point that has now been left behind. What does that mean? It means, as it were, metaphorically, if you could look back on the road of your spiritual journey, you could go back and say, you see this spot right here? Before that, I was a part of the kingdom of darkness. After it, I am now a part of the kingdom of light. And I've left it behind, and it's just farther and farther in the rearview mirror. That was the moment I was born again. And this is really the ultimate promotion Colossians 1.13 says he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Aren't those great words? Delivered. It means saved, rescued, transferred. This is a word that means to stand someplace different. I used to be standing in the darkness. Now I'm standing in the light. You're in a different place. Now. Why is this regeneration, this state of being born again, this state of being a new creation, of being delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of Christ, why is it so permanent? Why is it so powerful? Why is it so priceless? Well, very simply, because now you have the very life of Christ imparted to you. And I don't know how they explain that. I don't know that anybody can explain it. It's just true. Colossians 1.28 speaks of the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. Galatians 2.20, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Second Corinthians 13.5, Christ is in you. That's mind-boggling. Not only were you convinced by the Spirit, you've been regenerated by the Spirit such that Christ is in you. There's a third position you have still thinking about the Holy Spirit, you are indwelt by the Spirit. You are indwelt by the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2.12 says, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Romans five five, Hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And honestly, I'm not even really sure it's possible to understand the ramifications of the Holy Spirit indwelling us. We actually can have some understanding based on a negative situation. There is one way we do understand the Holy Spirit indwelling us, and it's a painful one, and that is that no sin is ever done in secret. None. Ephesians 4:30 tells us not to grieve the Holy Spirit of God. What, what's the context? The context is is that when you tell stories and gossip and slander and let corrupting talk come out of your mouth, corrupting talk is that which gives somebody else a false impression of another, changes their view in slanderous fashion, that when that's happening, the Holy Spirit is grieved. Now, we don't assign God one emotion at a time. We don't say, well, then God would be grieved all the time. That's not the point. The point is, why is the Holy Spirit grieved? Because it's as if he's saying, while you're doing this, hey, I'm right here. I, I'm not a universe away. I have indwelt you. I live in you. And you're speaking these words. You're doing these things. So that's a negative way we can sort of understand the, the power of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But if we turn to a more positive ramification, I think there's one major one we can understand. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit contributes greatly to our confidence in this fact. God has made his home with you. That almost sounds like we shouldn't say that out loud, doesn't it? That God has made his home with you. But I'm just telling you what the Bible says. Ephesians 2.22 says, In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. John 14, 23, Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. That almost sounds unconscionable. Like we would say, no, God, I am unworthy for you to make your home with me. No, God, you're too mighty. You're too glorious for me. No, God, the house of my life is too filthy, too dirty. No, it's not. Because God won't move into any house that isn't clean. He has moved into the home of your life. Why? Because he cleaned house first. He cleaned you of sin. He cleansed your house in Christ. And God has made his home with you. And based on that, what can Satan really do? He can throw rocks at the windows. He can bang on the front door. He can blow the winds of suffering against the walls, but he's never coming in. Why? Because God doesn't share. God does not share. God is a jealous God. And he's going to keep you for himself for all eternity. Once he's moved in, nobody else is ever moving in. It's only him. The reality of God making his home with you will never change. And then he'll bring you, as we said this morning, to where he is. And even as he has made his home with you, you will then make your home with him. That's certain. It's absolutely certain. Here's a fourth position. You are detached from the world. You're detached from the world. 1 Peter 2.11 calls you sojourners and exiles in this world. A sojourner in the Bible is a traveler, a, a stranger, somebody you didn't know, somebody who doesn't really belong In exile means you're in a place you don't belong. You're not in your true home. The book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 13, gives this dynamic when speaking of the great men of faith of the Old Testament. It says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. That's how they had faith. Oh, I don't belong here. I belong in God's home. Jesus gave us a very simple test for the validity of a person's faith in him. He said in John 12:25, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. That doesn't mean to hate your life as in getting up every morning and saying, I hate my life. The idea of hating your life is saying, this isn't where I belong. I'm a stranger here. I'm an exile here. Yes, I'm going to enjoy the blessings of God, but tick tock, it's time to go home. The sooner the better. James explained that the true Christian is detached from the world in terms of loyalty and love. James 4.4, 4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Very simple to understand. And listen to how Paul speaks of how he's left the world behind in his heart. Galatians 6.14 But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. He's saying the world has been put to death for me. He doesn't want the world and the world doesn't want Paul. Everybody wins. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul when he was given the opportunity? I won't say forced because I don't think anybody had to force him. When he was given the opportunity to kneel at a chopping block on an obscure road outside the city of Rome and as a Roman soldier placed an axe upon his neck? Do you imagine the Apostle Paul who has seen visions of heaven, who has preached the gospel for decade after decade, knowing that in mere moments his time is done? What did he say? He said, for me to live is Christ, but to die is what? gain." This is one of the tremendous blessings of suffering, by the way. One of the great things about suffering is it takes away the shine. It takes away the sheen. It takes away the appeal of this world. You ever buy a new car and on the way home you spill a drink on the floor and you go, well, that was fun for 15 minutes. It lays bare the realities of how very little this world has to offer you in comparison to the eternal riches with Christ. When the fellowship and perfect union with countless millions upon millions of believers in Christ in heaven, when you experience that, the the few sometimes good and oftentimes painful relationships you had on earth, those are going to seem paltry. When you walk around the walls of New Jerusalem and look at the foundation of the walls, the concrete as it were, and inside the concrete instead of gravel, we see from Revelation 21, diamonds and sapphires and emeralds and rubies, That cute little 401k you saved up. Oh, isn't that adorable? Here, let me dig a diamond out of the concrete. And as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4.17, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, that when you compare the glories of the world that God has to come The little pains of this world, they'll seem like momentary uh, inflictions of little pinches of inconvenience. In fact, he says it's beyond all comparison. You can't compare it. You can't really make a comparison. You have the position of being detached from this world. And if you would think about that a little bit more, your days would be filled with more joy. Now, how can this be that you're detached from the world? You, You might say, okay, great, but I need a home. Well, this gives us our fifth position. You are a citizen of heaven. You're not just a stranger here. You have a home. It's waiting for you. You're a citizen of heaven. I love the fact that the Apostle Paul speaks of heaven as home. Can I put it this way? What is home to you? It is a place that is familiar. When you go to heaven, it will be familiar. It will be something you know. Oh, this is my home. Philippians 3.20, Paul says, famously, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, keep in mind that Paul here is writing to the believers in Philippi. This is a Roman city, very proud of its Roman heritage and, and citizenry. In fact, Philippi was where it was the city that retired Roman soldiers went to receive their reward and end their days there in, in pleasure and in a fine retirement. Citizenship was everything in Rome. It was everything. So for Paul to tell Roman citizens, your citizenship is in heaven, if they have faith, they'll say, wow, our citizenship here is pretty good. That must be amazing. Paul's saying, you think you have privileges now? Just wait. Now, for us, the idea of citizenship is kind of normal. But in the ancient world, the concept of citizenship was in most ancient empires, was basically non-existent. The common people had no way to participate in the affairs of a nation or the government. Those in power were answerable to nobody except themselves. Probably one of the first cultures to develop something like citizenship were the Athenians. They were, they were Greek. And then the Romans developed this extensively. Citizenship says, I am involved. I matter. I'm a part Do you understand that you are involved in heaven? You matter in heaven. You're a part of heaven already. You are exiled citizens of the realm of God awaiting your king to come retrieve you and bring you back to your home, to the place where you belong. In fact, I want to develop that just a little bit. Not only do you have your position as a citizen of heaven, but you have the position. Here's our sixth one. You are associated with heaven. You're associated with heaven. You are, by position, can I put it this way? Heavenly. You are heavenly. There's a few ways you're heavenly. You have a heavenly calling, for certain. Hebrews 3 1 calls you holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling. What is that calling? It's your initial salvation, and someday it'll be that moment when the Lord Jesus Christ calls you home. You have that, it's yours. You have a heavenly inheritance. we already spoke about this first peter one four Your inheritance is kept in heaven for you, which is what makes the prosperity gospel so silly. You want a little bit now or everything later. Not only do you have a heavenly calling or a hev- and a heavenly inheritance, you have a heavenly life. your life is heavenly. ephesians two five and six it tells us even when we were dead in our trespasses made alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You have a seat, as it were, in heaven, and it says you're already there. One little detail, a couple more decades to go, and you're there. But it's so certain that it's already reserved. I don't know if this how literal this will be, but if I take this completely literally at least in a wooden fashion there is a beautiful seat somewhere in heaven that has my name on it and no one else will sit in it until i arrive you have a heavenly calling you have a heavenly inheritance you have a heavenly life you have all heavenly blessings you have all heavenly blessings ephesians 1 3 Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Going back to the Pentecostal movement, whether they tell you you need to get more blessing, you need to get more of something, more of this, more of that, more of God, more of the spirit, more blessing, more miracles, more power. Sorry, I already have them all. I possess, through the Holy Spirit, all the power God wants me to have, all of the miracles he's ever going to need to do in my life, the miracle of salvation, of course, being at the top of that list. I possess the Holy Spirit. I possess the Holy Word of God. I possess the church of Jesus Christ. What else do I need? Nothing. I have all the heavenly blessings possible. You have a heavenly calling, a heavenly life, heavenly inheritance, heavenly blessings. You have a heavenly marriage Your union with Christ, your marriage on earth not working out so well, that's okay. You have a heavenly one on its way. Revelation 19 tells us Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice. And exalt and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who were invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. What does that mean? It means that if you've been invited, you will be there. You are associated With heaven. Can I put it this way? When your name is mentioned in heaven, everybody says, Oh, yeah, I know them. They're just not here yet. You're known, you're familiar, you're associated with heaven. And so, in just our little sample of your position in Christ, your position includes being convinced by the Spirit, regenerated by the Spirit, indwelt by the Spirit, detached from the world. You're a citizen of heaven, and you're associated with heaven. I'd like to take a little bit of time, I'd like to apply this. I want to apply this specifically to two groups tonight. The first group I'd like to address I'll call the shocked pretenders. The shocked pretenders. I have a theological questions for, question for you. Do false Christians know that they're false? Do they know that they're fake? Jesus said in Matthew 7, beginning in verse 22, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. They're shocked. They're stupefied. This is unbelievable. And in the horror of that moment, they realize that Jesus Christ is not their Lord. He is their judge. And their last view of him after their first view of him will be, as he cast them headlong into the lake of fire. These are church members. These are religious people. These are self-proclaimed committed followers of Christ. These are people who did things in the name of Jesus Christ. And now some of them may be saying, well, that certainly can't be me. That's what they all thought too. In the church of Corinth, the leadership there was plagued by men who were misbehaving so badly that Paul called their salvation into question. He said in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Why is he so concerned for them? Because they're exhibiting some signs that their position in Christ is not real. It's fraudulent. What were the signs they were exhibiting? I'll give you a few. Some of the signs the leaders of the Church of Corinth exhibited the first sign, a lack of genuine closeness with the body of Christ. A lack of genuine closeness with the body of Christ. Second Corinthians 6, 11 and 12. Paul says, we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In other words, there was a lack of affection on the part of some, and Paul's concerned about that. That's very different than what we see in true believers Timothy in Philippians 2:20 is said to be genuinely concerned for the welfare of the church. Epaphroditus in Philippians 3:26 is said to have been longing for the brothers and sisters in Philippi. Ephesians 4:32 speaks of being tender-hearted toward one another, a softness of heart, a love, a tenderness the men on the road to Emmaus commented that as Jesus was teaching them, their hearts were burning within them. They were experiencing uh, the, the Greek idea of koinonia, of fellowship, of communion with one another because they experienced fellowship in Christ. John wrote the church in 2 John 5, And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning that we what? love one another. Now, we all generally have people in our lives we like and who like us maybe more than others. But if you find yourself unable to truly draw near, to be vulnerable, to be real, to fight the good fight of the gospel, of the faith, in real relationship, Paul would say that's a sign you need to beware. It's a second sign some in Corinth were showing a growing coldness toward the shepherds of Christ's church. They're showing a growing coldness toward the shepherds. Paul pleaded with them in 2 Corinthians 7, 2. He said, make room in your hearts for us. Chapter 10, verse 10, some were saying that Paul had a weak presence and his preaching was worthless. Chapter 11, verse 16, he pleads. He says, if you think I'm foolish, at least accept me as a fool. Would you at least accept me even as a fool? Now, while it is true that familiarity can breed contempt, if you allow it to do so, consider the example of Hebrews thirteen seven. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the example of Paul in the church of Philippi. They were very familiar, but their familiarity didn't breed contempt. Instead, it bred love. It bred fondness. It bred a partnership for the gospel. Paul told the church at Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 and 13, he told them to respect and esteem their leaders. Now, interestingly, both of those are internal heart attitudes, aren't they? To respect literally means in Greek to know them, to know their hearts, know their passions, to key in on how God is leading them, to esteem them. It means to hold them in a high view in your thinking. Boy, that would have been really helpful for the Corinthian church. Basically, all of the letter of 2 Corinthians is is Paul saying, Hey, remember me? I'm the one who fed you the word. There's a third sign that some of the leaders in Corinth were showing. It was very concerning to Paul. A lack of conviction and instead a fighting spirit. A lack of conviction and instead a fighting spirit. 2 Corinthians two one reveals to us that Paul had made a previous visit to the church at Corinth to correct some great immorality that was happening in the church, and he calls it the painful visit. What happened at the painful visit? It didn't go well. Many in the church were argumentative with him and essentially ran him out of town. Now, the letter of 2 Corinthians also includes the fact that Paul is rejoicing that they've softened in their tone towards him. I had one husband tell me that after 15 years, his wife, who professed to be a believer, had not, in his memory, ever repented or asked for forgiveness one time, ever, in their entire marriage, for anything. The position of the believer does not belong to those who are recalcitrant, those who are fraudulent, and the shock will be of an unimaginable magnitude when facing judgment. But Paul loved the Corinthians. Second Corinthians is also filled with his frustration at their attitudes, yes, but it's filled with his continued affection for them, his hope for them. And so, because of these and other warning signs, Paul told the church, told the leaders of the church at Corinth in particular, examine yourselves, test yourselves. Are you going to fail the test? The position may be feigned, it may be faked, it may be fraudulent. And so, Paul says, examine yourselves. But the second group I'd like to apply our thoughts to tonight, the suffering Christians, the suffering Christians. I'd ask you to raise your hand if you're one of them, but that's all of us, so we won't waste the energy. It's everybody. Along with many other pastors who would share the same sentiment, I have to say that this particular year of 2020, has been the most agonizing and draining year of, of ministry spiritually in all of my years of ministry, bar none. There's not even a close second. I've seen the hand of God, and I've seen the shadow of Satan. I've seen them both at work in more, more ways than I can keep track of. God in his sovereign plan has just seemingly seemed to allow blow after blow to just keep coming in ways I haven't experienced in years. But that's been the experience of many of you as well. It may still be. That's one of the reasons I decided to preach this series on Satan and his schemes. And as we looked at this morning, what do you do in the evil day? What do, you look at, what do you do in the day when Satan's attacks intensify and they just come wave after wave after wave and you have no time to breathe, no time to catch up, no time to think, no time to react? They're just relentless. Three times we looked at this morning in Ephesians 6, three times we're simply told to stand, stand, stand. What what do you do to stand in the face of the schemes of the devil? It means to dig in. It means to get set. It means to brace and just take blow after blow after blow after blow and just take it. Because you can. You're wearing the mighty armor of God. The longer you walk with the Lord, the more discerning you will be. That when you see evil around you and evil impacting your own life, You'll recognize it for what it is. And so what do you do? Ephesians 6, you stand, you stand, you stand. Based on what? Your certain position. I'd like to read a beautiful prayer to you. My hope is that this will be your prayer. I know this is a good prayer because it comes straight out of Psalm 118. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. The name, in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. And recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and become my salvation The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you, for you are my God. I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. When Ephesians 6 says, stand, stand, stand. How do you do it? Just like that. That is the prayer of a victorious Christian, and I pray that that will be your prayer. Amen. Let's pray. We give thanks to the Lord for he is good for your steadfast love endures forever. Our God, we thank you and we love you. We ask you, God, for those who are in the category of the shocked pretenders. Oh, God, might this be the night that they realize that they do not share in those beautiful positions in Christ and that for them, Satan is unlimited in his power. I pray, Lord, this would be the moment that they receive Christ, even if they have been church members serving in the church, leaders in the church. And then, Lord, we pray for the suffering Christians, those among us and those listening, who are in pain and who are in trial and in agony. Remind them, Lord, that the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Remind them of their positions. Help them to look heavenward and not to the earth. Help them to look to the glories of the future and not to the present. Help them to be able to honestly say, this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. But also to say, I look forward to that day. When I'm not just associated with heaven, but I'm in heaven. May we look heavenward and may we live in light of that reality, grasping a hold of those beautiful certainties, those positions that we possess, they are ours, and no one will take them away from us. Lord Jesus Christ, I thank you that you promised that no one will snatch your children out of your hand And Holy Spirit of God, I thank you for indwelling us, for regenerating us, for convincing us, for sealing us. You will be in us for all time and all eternity. And therefore, what can man do to me? What can the world do to me? Oh, death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? Death is defeated, all evil is defeated. And we await the consummation of that victory we have in Christ. And we pray and thank you in Christ's name. Amen.